I'm going to tell you the story of an election. It's an old one, and you probably don't know a lot about it, but don't worry. It's very similar to an election you know everything about. So let's start with that one. Here's a little refresher. It's 2016. Donald Trump has just pulled off the biggest upset in political history, and no one can believe it. They essentially did not get this right. We're covering a story that no one saw coming. Well, my crystal ball's been shattered into atoms here because I predicted the exact opposite of what happened. But I'm a typical, you know, campaign... But what if you didn't need a crystal ball? In fact, what if looking into the future was the exact opposite way we should have been looking? If we want to understand 2016, we have to find something it was similar to. And that's where this old election comes in. The 1960 race for the presidency between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Now hear me out. Both were change elections which saw a member of a popular two-term president's administration fall to a phenom running without permission. Both saw never-before-seen utilizations of new media. And both were the subject of conspiracies that the winner called for nefarious outside help. This is the story of two elections. Both of them unlike anything else, except each other. Hi, I'm Justin Robert Young. I first became fascinated by the 1960 election after I was totally blindsided, like I'm sure many people listening were, by the election of Donald Trump in 2016. I do a politics podcast. Part of what I do every day is to take a lap around the internet to see what people are talking about, what narratives are being formed, what arguments people are having. I think I have my finger on the pulse of this thing, and then Trump wins. Summoning all of my Florida public school education, I made one resolution. If I was wrong... I could at least prevent myself from making the same mistake over and over and over again. One of the things that I know I did not do my due diligence on is understanding Trump's support in its own words. And so that became my goal. Finding Trump fan message boards, websites, following a few people on Twitter, that kind of thing. Not exactly backbreaking labor. I just wanted to fill in the blind spot that made me look like an idiot. Now, on one particular Trump fan board, I noticed something odd. About once a month, various members would post glowing tributes to John F. Kennedy. One that would be voted up so many times, it would be among the most popular posts of the day. This was very strange to me because growing up, I had understood the legacy of John F. Kennedy with conservatives to be a pill-popping womanizer who had all of his flaws sandblasted by a lapdog media and all of his good points highlighted beyond reality. To be kind, he was style over substance. But then I got to reading some more about the Trump campaign itself. Steve Bannon, who not only shaped the landscape on the right with his website, Breitbart.com, but then took over Trump's campaign for the home stretch, lists Kennedy as a hero, the kind of Democrat he wishes still existed, an iconoclast, an inspiration for working-class Irish families like his growing up. 
Roger Stone, another early Trump supporter, wrote his book about Trump's 2016 election entitled The Making of the President 2016, an homage to Theodore White's landmark election books. Of course, White's first and most famous making of the president chronicled the 1960 Kennedy victory over Nixon. It set the tone for every narrative-driven campaign gossip book to follow. Roger Stone also has Richard Nixon tattooed on his back for whatever that's worth. The more I read, the more it became clear that many in Trump's base, for whatever else anyone can think about them, thought of the eventual 45th president as a Kennedy-esque figure. And not in the way we normally talk about Kennedy in the mainstream media. That's usually code for a young, good-looking Democrat. This is something more primal. This is Kennedy, the revolution. I don't believe that was an accident. I believe this was shaped and cultivated by the Trump campaign itself, using deliberate messaging that went back as far as Trump's initial announcement. And so, to understand exactly what those lessons were, I read and read and read and read. Oddly enough, there's not as much written about 1960 as you might think. You can probably chalk that up to Kennedy and Nixon both being involved in other gigantic country-stopping news events. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. Two hours from now, he's going on television reportedly to tell the nation that he is quitting the ultimate victim of the Watergate scandal that destroyed his administration. What I found is what I'm going to tell you. It involves an archaic political system ripe for disruption, both within and beyond the rules. A star-studded campaign involving four eventual presidents and the old conspiracy theory. The one that says the Kennedy family employed the mob by way of Frank Sinatra to secure a razor-thin victory. I gotta say, I'm so excited to tell you guys about all this because I learned so much about two of the most iconic figures in politics, Richard Nixon and JFK. Before one became Democrat Jesus and the other became Republican Voldemort, they were two young men competing in an election that would mean so much more than the both of them, and yet is rarely talked about and even less understood. At a certain point, it just became old news. But what if the Trump team remembered? As they settled on their slogan, Make America Great Again, after all, John F. Kennedy only won one campaign for president, and it was the one in which his slogan was Get America Moving Again. News dies and becomes history. But here, tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. I'm Walter Cronkite, and this is our anchor desk in Control Studio A for our CBS News Westinghouse coverage of this 1956 Democratic Convention. And this is the dramatic high point of... I can just imagine old Joe Kennedy making his way around the floor of the 1956 Democratic Convention 
shaking hands. He knows where he needs to be, and he knows he needs to see it happen. Adlai Stevenson is on his way to being nominated by the Democrats when old Joe's son Jack takes the podium. He hunches over to talk into the mics as the rambunctious crowd rumbles. Cigarette smoke plumes into Jack's face periodically as convention organizers buzz around him in the background. It's a sight our modern eyes are unfamiliar with. We're used to seeing conventions being perfectly organized coronations. But that's not what old Joe sees. Old Joe sees a fight. See, Stevenson's going to be on the top of that ticket, but nobody knows who his running mate is. But that's what old Joe's here to watch. The rest of the world to meet the new superstar of the Democratic Party. The time is right. The hour has struck. The man is here, and he is ready. Let us go forth from this convention telling the American people that we have- As history would eventually recognize, this was it. This was the moment it all changed. This is the moment that the nation meets JFK. It's also the moment that the Democratic Party is about to learn for the first time what happens when you underestimate the Kennedys. It's the first time that Jack is going to attempt to insert himself into the race for the White House. This did not happen by accident. Hell, you can probably say that the speech Joe Kennedy watches at that 1956 convention really began when Joe began his career in politics oh so many decades before. Joe gets named the first security and exchange commissioner in American history by FDR and eventually ambassador to the United Kingdom as World War II erupts. Which does bring us to one of those things you tend to talk about when you talk about Joe Kennedy. He's a literal fan of Hitler. Joe is, from the earliest stages of World War II, a skeptic and believed that the Nazis could be an ally against the growing red menace in the Soviet Union. He's in the United Kingdom as U.S. ambassador and a supporter for Neville Chamberlain's signing of the Munich Agreement, the legendary appeasement of Hitler so he would not bring about another world war, which, spoiler alert, Hitler did anyway. The frustration between FDR and Old Joe got personal and boiled over. Old Joe is eventually replaced in the United Kingdom, and FDR, in the process, becomes an American icon, locking up democratic power in the executive branch of America for a decade. It's a slight to the Kennedy family that would never be forgotten. And in the short term, it meant Joe's political career is over. So Joe waits. He stokes connection to the Irish communities throughout the East Coast and Midwest, putting him in connection with many of the biggest growing influential political machines in the country, waiting, plotting, creating debts he'd call in at the right time. The day his boy proves them all wrong. And you got to imagine, for old Joe, that's Chicago. That's 
1956. Today's the day we make the move. Old Joe knows that this is the result of a long journey. And he knows how very close it came to not happening at all. In my head, I just keep thinking about old Joe watching his son, looking at everything coming together. And when I think about that, I wonder if just a fraction of his brain thinks back to that night. The night his decades-old plan almost fell apart forever. It's two months after D-Day. The Axis powers are on the run, but Hitler's still alive. Operation Aphrodite is an ingenious blow to the reeling Nazi army. Convert a plane so it can be taken up to 2,000 feet, arm it with explosives, and rig it so it can be radio-controlled. You have the pilot take it up to cruising altitude, turn everything on, and then parachute out. The plane is then radio-controlled across enemy lines and crashes into its intended target. It's literally a drone strike in 1944. The first attempt of Aphrodite is carried out by Lieutenants Kennedy and Willie. It's very simple. Take the bird up over the eastern English countryside, turn on the radio control, arm the bomb, bail. War eventually ends, considering the momentum, the end is near, and everyone goes home. And man, what a home Kennedy goes home to. From the moment he steps back into Massachusetts, he begins to walk a historic path as the first Irish and first Catholic president of the United States. He's been groomed for it since birth, and nothing, I repeat, nothing was left to chance. Education at Dexter Preparatory School, then to Harvard, then to the London School of Economics before Harvard Law. He'd already been a delegate at the National Convention for the Democrats in 1940, and that was before serving his country. That's the plan. The plan laid out by Lieutenant Kennedy's father, Old Joe, and nothing would stop it. When Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, started exhibiting mood swings and violent outbursts three years prior to the mission we're talking about, Old Joe authorized a lobotomy to calm her down, lest she embarrass a family about to have their political moment in the sun. There is too much at stake, too much in motion already. When his boy got home, old Joe would make sure that his pride and joy, his firstborn, a war hero, no less, wins his first office the House of Representatives, in 1946. But back to the mission. Lieutenant Kennedy brings the bird up, pulls the pin to arm the explosives, and radios back spade flush. The agreed-upon code that everything is okay. And then, 
The plane explodes. Midair. Wreckage. Littered. Blytheburg, East Suffolk. No one on the ground died, but the lives of the two pilots ended instantly. The secret telegram to the generals read as follows. Robot exploded in the air at approximately 2,000 feet, eight miles southeast of Halesworth at 1820 hours. Wilford J. Willie, senior grade lieutenant, and Joseph P. Kennedy, senior grade lieutenant, both USNR, were killed instantly. I'm not a father. I don't know the pain of losing your firstborn son, what it does to you, thinking about the life they lived and the life they'll never get a chance to live. But I can't imagine a worse feeling. Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. died serving his country on that mission. But the life he was meant to lead survived. There is too much at stake, too much in motion already. Oh, there's a war hero Kennedy on the ballot for the 11th District of Massachusetts in 1946, just like there was always supposed to be. It's just not the man it was supposed to be. It's Joe's younger brother, John F. Kennedy. A son of Joe Kennedy running for the presidency was something that was going to happen. Joe is determined to make sure of that. All the pieces are there. You can picture it. Jack next to Stevenson on the trail. Hell, Eisenhower was thinking about not even running this time. They can pull the upset that shocks the world. Jack can match up really well as an attack dog against the sitting vice president, Richard Nixon. I can imagine old Joe smiling as Jack delivers this line as part of his closing at the 1956 convention. Our party will be up against two of the toughest, most skilled campaigners in American political history. One who takes the high road and one who takes the low road. If now, truth be told, Joe kind of liked Nixon. He even donated money to his campaign to help him get into the Senate. Nixon was a commie hater, so in Joe's mind, awesome. And Jack and Dick were even kind of friendly. They both served during World War II and were part of the armed services representation that came to D.C. en masse after the war ended. They were around the same age and hung out with each other in the House. And both of them eventually made it to the Senate. But Nixon didn't spend much time there. He gets drafted by Eisenhower in 1952, and now he's in the White House. Because that's where the action is. Not the Senate, the White House. That's the plan. 
So Jack's going to have to be rough with Nixon. But even with old Joe's foresight, it's hard to say that he could know exactly how important that speech would be. It wound up setting the template for conventions years and years and years, decades in the future. The idea of the young rising Democratic star giving a stirring speech is invented right there on television with JFK. It's the reason why Barack Obama was compared to him back in 2004. The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. Sure, you get your face on TV and now everyone knows your name, but more specifically, you're now on the radar of the media. And for JFK, it's this moment that matters the most in that department. Because this exact moment, Kennedy morphs from something more than just a man. Specifically, the press begins to fixate on him. The access journalism of the era becomes myth-making. From this speech through his election, JFK isn't a man, he's a movement. I actually do believe that if JFK had never been assassinated, that the love affair between him and the press might have, if not been overthawed, at least on some level, eventually. If he eventually just became a normal president, we'd look at him more critically than we do. But we'll never know, because he does get assassinated in 1963, and the world grieves. You can't cover him like a normal president. But what if we did? How would we think of the Bay of Pigs? How would we think of the Cuban Missile Crisis? How would we think about the beginning of Vietnam? How would we think of his affairs? The victims of his family's bare-knuckle politics. Hell, maybe even the space program would be in our minds differently if what happened in 1963 never happens. But it did. And the result is this. Any serious examination of JFK requires a deliberate stripping of myth-making. It's not anybody's fault. It's just how journalism was at the time, and it's something we have to deal with. So here's an example of two differing narratives about how John F. Kennedy introduced himself to the nation at the 1956 convention. The popular one is this. Kennedy gives the speech that you just heard, and the world falls in love with him. Convention goers go gaga, reporters rhapsodize, and from out of nowhere, a Kennedy for Vice President Bush in 1956 is created and it almost works. And then, 
The old guard crushes it at the last minute, spreading a ghost story about how Catholic candidates can never win in a general national election. Here is what I think is both closer to reality and more interesting. The nominee, Adlai Stevenson, narrowly wins the nomination, but is very vexed about who his vice president would be. Normally, this is how you settle that. Somebody wins at a convention, they then decide who strategically is best to fill out their ticket and picks them. That's it. No muss, no fuss, but not Stevenson. He makes the entire 1956 convention, the same one that just went through a war to nominate him, he makes them vote again, this time for his vice president. This creates massive chaos and the Kennedys seize on it. As for the anti-Catholic stuff, Kennedy's speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, wrote a memo about the advantages of a Catholic candidate, specifically in key states, and then circulates it through a friendly source to the delegates and the press. Essentially, the backlash to his report creates the controversy. As you are going to see, the Kennedys are masters at loudly identifying solutions to problems before the problems themselves bother to show up. Obviously, there was enough anti-Catholic bias to create a backlash, and certainly there was an old guard that wanted the vice presidential nomination for one of their elder statesmen, and that's exactly what happened. The Kennedys, though, honestly, never really had a shot. It was an achievement that they were in the running to begin with. JFK had no delegates to offer, and quite frankly, was not from a part of the country that gave Adlai Stevenson an electoral college advantage. The family is obviously upset, and it really underscores to them the lesson on exactly how hard it is to win anything at a convention. But it's not a total loss. JFK's name recognition is through the roof, and besides... I'm sure a few months later, they were pretty excited that they didn't have a seat on the absolute train wreck of a campaign that Stevenson ran against Eisenhower because it's bad and it loses big time. Rumor has it that JFK's brother Bobby, who worked on the Stevenson campaign, was so disgusted by it that he wound up voting for Eisenhower. And as it turned out, the majority of Americans agreed with Bobby. Well, word from Washington is that the Republicans already are celebrating uh, in their Sheraton Park Hotel headquarters, their victory celebration headquarters. Leonard Hall, the national chairman, has just appeared before the, uh, the meeting there and has said that it looks as if President Eisenhower will get 60% of the vote and loud cheers. Of course, we did that. Now let's pause. But now, for the sake of our story, the stage is set 
for a collision course. Nixon essentially punched his ticket for 1960 as the sitting vice president, but Kennedy had yet to earn it, and his road would be difficult. It's one thing to snag a vice presidential slot in the chaos of a convention, it's another to convince a nation that you are the guy and then survive a convention for the nomination of president where all eyes are on you. To do it, the Kennedys devised a plan that would be copied and perfected in the decades that followed. It is the modern campaign. They'd get to Pennsylvania Avenue by the way of Madison Avenue. How do businesses make sure that products aren't flops? They don't leave anything to chance. They don't leave anything to gut instinct. And they are certainly not going to leave any wiggle room to their competitors. Among the Kennedy advancements is an infinite private war chest, a full-time pollster, a private jet, and a deep roster of famous family members and surrogates who are on permanent retainer. Videotape machines that could not only be used to refine speeches, but also pump out pre-edited packages for local television. All of these things, everything I just mentioned, they are bare necessities of a campaign today. And the Kennedys invented them. At an early meeting of trusted advisors, the decision is made. Kennedy didn't have the option of waiting until the convention to try to convince the powers that be that it was his time. If they wanted to elect a Catholic, they had to socialize the nation early. They had to run in the primaries. Something at that time was thought of as a high-risk, likely death trap to a campaign. Back then, since you couldn't secure the majority of delegates you needed to win at the convention during the primaries, there wasn't enough of them. The campaigns really only served as an opportunity to highlight weaknesses in primary contests instead of strengths. Weaknesses that could be exploited by those who sat home until the convention. And those late joiners usually have the best resumes for the job. But waiting is not for Jack. For Jack, more is better. Awareness is all that matters. Kennedy family friend Dave Powers puts it this way, quote, we're going to sell Jack like soap flakes, end quote. Now here is another parallel I see between the Kennedy campaign and the Trump campaign. See, the Kennedys understood that the primaries were not a death trap. They were unused bandwidth. They were a way that they could get in front of voters and let them understand and begin to form affection for their candidate. It was also a time that they could court the press. Donald Trump understood how to do the press's job for them. Remember that Trump didn't get into the 2016 race until a month before the first debate. By that time, there were several candidates that had already had headquarters in Iowa. They had already gotten the right endorsements. They had already made inroads with the big donors that were going to fund their campaign. Trump had none of those. And he certainly wasn't going to get any party blessing. He understood that there was one asset in his favor, the media. Everyone else 
in that race, including Hillary Clinton when it went to the general, distrusted or thought that the media was always going to be more of a problem for them than an asset. They didn't like being on camera. They didn't like gotcha moments. They didn't like hard questions. They didn't like their narrative getting disrupted by anything. But Trump was born on camera. As long as he gets in late and loud, he would own a narrative that he could always control. And that is all that mattered to him. Take an element of the process that your opponents don't understand and punish them for it. By the time that they realize what's happening, it's way too late. That is the story of 2016. And this is the story of 1960. One candidate ready to fundamentally reshape how we reach the nation and another trying desperately to maintain the popularity of his predecessor with a misguided attempt to do it the old-fashioned way. It's the birth of the modern playbook compared to the 2016 election when it died at the hands of somebody who understood it better than anyone gave him credit for. But unlike 2016, oh, as we are in the 60th anniversary of the 1960 campaign, we know all the dirty details. Hospitalizations, double crosses, blood feuds birthed and dirty tricks played, celebrity glitz, mistresses, and booze-soaked politics the way it used to be. Amongst all of it, an origin story that two of the most iconic American politicians ever, including the moment that Richard Nixon was told that somebody had stolen personal information about him that could capsize his career with only hours before election day. After all, you can never have too many fail-safes, right? Not if there's too much at stake. Too much in motion already. Thank you guys so much for listening to this. If this is the first time that you have heard anything that I've done, I <laughs> I really want to thank you. And I want to thank you for getting to this point because I know that this kind of subject matter is rarely delivered with the kind of, you know, explosive bombast that I'm, I'm trying to put into this. And part of it is this. I think so often we get so scholarly with history. We become so reverent of it that it drains it of all of its blood and all of its humanity. And I think that that's a huge mistake. All of the best history teachers that I had throughout any of level of schooling, be it South Plantation High School, Syracuse University, or elementary or middle school, were always the teachers that made me understand that the people we were talking about weren't just names in books. They were people, people that were similar to me. And that's what I want to do. I want to give you this history 
in a way that makes you get excited, pick favorites, be judgmental, all the things that we normally do in life. And with that, I offer you a heartfelt sorry for yelling. Although, no promises that it won't happen again. Because it will. It's just the way I talk. All right, let's do the credits. Raise the Dead is research written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find a full list of our sources for this series at our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. That's also where you can find our audiobook version, including a bonus episode, and our complete ebook of written transcripts. I would also like to thank my senior strategist, Tamar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Roundsville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in me putting this together. You can also send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And thank you to the Heart and Dagger in Oakland, California for your fantastic research facilities. And now, a few things I didn't have a chance to work into the episode. So on the subject of Joe Kennedy, after he is out of public service, he gets into a couple things that really, really, really make him rich. Number one, he works out in the studio system in Hollywood. That's going to come back in a few episodes. Uh, And he was also in the liquor distribution business, specifically with Scotch, Dewars to be exact. Now, this obviously gets us in the area of whether or not he was a bootlegger before the end of Prohibition. Your mileage may vary on those rumors. Film buffs will remember Adelaide Stevenson from the opening text of the Stanley Kubrick classic, Dr. Strangelove. In short, all you really need to know, and and it's kind of explained as his parody character interacts with the others in the movies, that he's a pacifist, but a hero to progressives, and also a back-to-back presidential campaign loser. We are not going to get a chance to talk any more about Rosemary Kennedy in this series, but it is an absolutely tragic story. Uh, Joe lobotomizes her without his own wife's consent. Now, part of that is, you know, time and place in in our culture, but considering how affectionate or lack thereof Rose Kennedy, the matriarch of the family, was to her children, I don't know if she would have really had much say in the issue. But by the way, Rosemary's condition is kept a secret from the family until well after old Joe dies in 1969. So on the death of Joe Kennedy Jr., the best way that I could say to think about the the Kennedy clan, or at least Joe's plan to put one of his boys in the White House is kind of like a, a, a bench for Little League. When somebody gets up, everybody else slides down. So Joe out of the picture, that means that the second son uh, is Jack, JFK. And, and there's a lot of reporting on the subject that Jack and Joe might have got along better because for most of Jack's adult life, or at least his upbringing, he's not the favorite son. So he actually has a little bit of a better rapport with his father, or at least better than Joe Jr. did. That also means that somebody 
that really was not in the picture, like Bobby or Ted, now all of a sudden get one ring closer to the new favorite. One more benefit of JFK over Joe. There's a letter that Joe Jr. sends to his father after he is dispatched by the old man to go visit Hitler's Germany. Here's a line from it. Hitler was brilliant because he, quote, saw the need of a common enemy, someone by whose riddance the Germans would feel that they had cast out the cause of their predicament. It was excellent psychology, and it was too bad that it had to be done to the Jews. End quote. Yipes. You think that might have come up in a presidential campaign? And one last thing. 1956 is also, apparently where Frank Sinatra first witnesses the power of JFK. That that speech, again, you, you cannot overstate how much the world changes around the Kennedy family after Jack gives it, which includes the politically active Frank Sinatra. He's at the Democratic National Convention so he can sing for the attendees. He actually had been a, a lifelong political activist. His mom, Frank Sinatra's mom in Hoboken, New Jersey, was very active in the political scene. And by the time that Frank Sinatra moves to Hollywood, he starts palling around with Humphrey Bogart, who at that point is very active in the reelection of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This season on Raise the Dead. The Kennedys can't glad-hand their way into power, so they're forced to take a risk by running in the primaries. What stands in their way are not only contemporary rivals, but also stalwarts of the party that would love nothing more than to punt this rich kid back to daddy. They all realize together what true national momentum looks like as Kennedy mania runs wild on America. Meanwhile, a nerd from Southern California turned sharp elbow politician named Richard Nixon readies himself for a coronation as the Republican standard bearer, yet his party is changing around him. Fleeting are the days where flexibility means a long political life. The true believers demand purity, and they're willing to kneecap the vice president unless he proves his own. All this plus whispers of mob manipulation, pen pal letters from actor Ronald Reagan, last minute phone calls to Martin Luther King Jr. and a final election push that no one sees coming. It's Nixon versus Kennedy. All this season on Raise the Dead. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>